0: We welcome you to this assembly this evening. Our intention is to present to you what the Word of God teaches. Everyone here needs to be challenged to respect God, obey Christ, and live in harmony with those purposes. My part in that is to present to you what the Word of God teaches. In these opening moments this evening, I'll invite your attention to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, And when you arrive at that place, find chapter 5. I will tell you that on some other occasion, I'll speak in further depth about Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Tonight, I'm after one thing, and I'll describe that to you in just a moment. Solomon, in this work called Ecclesiastes, writes about life on earth. And his primary message is, without God, life here on earth is vanity. Another term that he uses is meaningless. So as the reader moves through Ecclesiastes, there are narratives and parables and statements and warnings given by the Holy Spirit instructing us to be certain that while we're here on this earth, God is central in everything that we do. Here's part of that. Ecclesiastes 5, beginning at verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're, I'm sorry, they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Here's a good example of a passage where the final phrase in the passage encapsulates the main idea. God is the one you must fear. Now, what is involved in that fear? Is it just ordinary fear? Is it reverence and respect? Is it dread of displeasing God? I believe there's some of all of that in this. But we can be certain of this part of godly fear. One part of godly fear is simply doing What you have said you will do. Everything that we say is before God. So, part of godly fear is simply doing what you have said you will do and doing what you have told God you will do. Fearing God certainly contains reverence and respect and the healthy dread of displeasing Him. But Solomon puts something else before us. That is part of godly fear. Solomon gives us a specific component of godly fear. Doing what you have told God you will do. Particularly in verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. All around us, out in the world and maybe closer to home, there are people who offer their lives to God when they're baptized, and then after that in worship and song and prayer, they essentially are telling God that they will do what pleases Him. But sometimes in actual daily life, that may not be the case, in the busyness that seems to draw people into the world. Sometimes there's no evidence that they're actually doing day by day what they promised God they would do in their initial response to Him in baptism. So think of that as vowing to God. I know sometimes we take that concept of vowing and we associate that with particular narratives in the Old Testament. Think of it as simply making a promise or a pledge. Think of vowing to God that you will live under His authority, that you will be a follower of Jesus Christ, such as we identified this morning, that you will gladly embrace all the components of obedience to the Creator inside and outside your life. But those intentions and promises cannot be just words. They must turn into action daily. Solomon is warning us. When you vow, a vow to God, do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. And it might be translated this way. Do what you say. I want to study with us tonight a very simple matter, keeping our promises to God. As Solomon would say, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So think of a vow for our purposes tonight as an oath or a pledge to God of what you say to God you're going to do. A promise that you make to the Creator and soberly consider the folly of telling God what you will do and then failing to do it. That's our subject. And I plug this into my preaching calendar because we're getting near the end of the year. And we often think of things that we're going to commit to or promise or resolve. I saw this the other day. My goal in 2019 is to accomplish the goals I set in 2018, which I should have done in 2017, because I made a promise in 2016, which I planned in 2015. Isn't that the way it is sometimes? I want to take us in a better direction. There are four distinct times when we make promises. There may be more than four, but there are four distinct times that we're going to look at tonight, and we're going to think of the vow concept as it emerges out of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So when I was baptized, I should think of that as making a promise or a vow to God. We're going to go back to Romans 6 that was brought up this morning, but we're going to dig a little deeper into it this evening. Near the end of chapter 5 in Romans, I mentioned this morning, Paul's emphasis at the end of chapter 5 is on the abundant, abounding grace of God. Paul says, "...as sin reigned in death..." Grace reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's an emphasis on the grace of God. The last part of chapter 5 puts that before the reader. The abundant grace of God that offers eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, to those who have accepted that offer by being baptized into Christ... Paul poses this question that has a very quick answer in chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And the quick answer comes right back. No, by no means, God forbid that we continue in sin after being cleansed. Now, as Paul develops that, it becomes clear that at baptism, a commitment is made. And you can think of that as a vow, a pledge, a promise to leave sin and embrace righteousness, to crucify the old self, and to emerge, to walk in newness of life. So we're going to do some reading about that, and we're going to see how it pertains to our promises to God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved by sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. For if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with Him. Now move with me to verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. When you were baptized, you are presenting yourself To God. You are saying to God, I'm done with sin. I'm ready to serve. The old life of disobedience is buried. I'm now committed to being a servant of God. But while you may start well, suppose you let those promises to God fade. The old sins return. You begin listening to the devil's lies. And all this business of serving God, you push away and you begin to serve sin again. Here's what's happening. Here's one way to look at that. You made a promise to God that you haven't kept. You made a promise to God that you haven't kept. Solomon said, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. That is to say, do what you promise. And we make a promise when we're baptized. There's another time when a vow is made. When I'm married, I made a vow to my wife before God. I hope we all understand, I think a Sunday evening group, we certainly do, that in the Bible marriage is not a flexible carnally convenient series of relationships to be navigated by whim that you move in and out of according to impulse. That's what marriage has become in the world. Just live together and try it out. That's a common sentiment. Get married and then if you don't like it, you can easily get out and find another partner without any thought to the design of the Creator. There are strong campaigns and deceptions today about denying the gender you were born with or same-sex marriage. Do you realize how far away from God's standards the world has gone? Marriage in the Bible is more than a ceremony, more than rings and cakes and documents. It is the commitment of a man and a woman to live together as husband and wife, meeting all such requirements of God and men, making a promise to each other and to God. We will not put asunder what God has joined. Matthew nineteen six. It is God who instituted marriage. That makes it his business. It is God who joins the man and woman together, according to Matthew 19.6. It is God who keeps the union strong when husband and wife keep their lives under his authority. But it's also God who is offended. When the vows and promises are ignored in the selfish interest of childish boredom or lust, for a third party, Jesus specified a cause for divorce in Matthew 19 sexual immorality. But in our time, people walk out of marriages and obtain divorces without that cause, just wanting to move on and find someone else. The enticement of youthful romance has died. People are ready to move on. So the vows made to each other and to God are just buried in the dirt of sin and selfishness well solomon said when you vow a vow to god do not delay paying it for he has no pleasure in fools pay what you vow when i become a parent there is a vow a promise involved in that i'm accepting all the responsibility that God has assigned to parents. Psalm 127 in verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. If we could just maybe do a better job getting young people to understand that when you have sex before marriage... You're putting yourself under the responsibility of becoming a parent. The Bible teaches that sexual activity is reserved for marriage. Hebrews 13 verse 4. Marriage ought to come first before making children. But when you make a baby, there is a responsibility to accept. There may also be some repentance, but there's a responsibility to accept. And it is so well expressed. In Psalm 127, verse 3, among many other passages, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. One disturbing element of our present distress in this society is young people making babies, but ill-prepared to take care of them, to raise them and provide for them, often depending upon... Taxpayers to do much of that. People are producing babies without accepting the God-assigned responsibility to raise them as a heritage from the Lord. And if people don't like what we say about this from Scripture, we can say to them, God is the one you must fear. When I make a promise to a person, I need to think of that and apply this "thou" concept. Does it bother you when someone makes a promise, makes a commitment to you, and you wait and wait and wait, and it just doesn't happen? The repairman says he will be there Monday at nine. How many of us have been through that? And he doesn't show Monday at all. And there's no phone call and no explanation. And I'm not just talking about punctuality, though that's often a troublesome issue. I'm talking about making promises that are not kept. I want to tell you, who doesn't do that? God. Don't worry about God not keeping his promises. God said, I, the Lord, do not change. Malachi 3 and verse 6. God keeps his promises. He is perfectly trustworthy. Now the devil, no. The devil is a liar. The devil makes promises he can't keep and he keeps promises he never made. So, who do I want to be like? God who has integrity, or the devil, who is a liar. Jesus spoke to this in Matthew chapter 3. No, Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Does that sound like Ecclesiastes 5? But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. What many of the Jews did, they took what Solomon said and other statements in the Old Testament and they came up with a whole list of promises that were binding, along with another list of promises that were not binding. Jesus speaks against that and James spoke against it. And here's what Jesus said Let what you say simply be yes. Or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All around us, there's dishonesty uh, dishonesty and deceit and fraud. The Christian must be different, fulfilling every commitment, honoring every promise. When you vow, a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. I want to strongly recommend that every Christian here go into the new year remembering what we've studied tonight. And when you make those promises to God and to yourself and to others, when you make those commitments and good intentions that you're going to fulfill next year, consider those commitments you speak before God In terms of this concept of vows, that you have attached yourself to a commitment that will display your faithfulness or not, your integrity or not. Remembering this basic thing that we discovered in the beginning of our study, God is the one you must fear. Should you need to declare your commitment to God this evening in baptism or repentance, let's be standing while we sing Gosh, I When I want, want thee, but I